Okay. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> it's good to be with you. It's good to sing. And uh, it's good to smile together. I, When I was looking at the weather weeks ago, as far out as I could, uh, they had uh, some rain in the forecast. And so I was uh, not sure what to expect. And I could not have asked for a better day to see all this wonderful shade over here and to experience our great God who loves us. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful to see your faces and I'm thankful to worship with you. So if you got a Bible on your phone or if you have the old school paper version, let's turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Some people, when they look at um, these verses, sometimes call them some of the hardest uh, verses in the scriptures. Sometimes they're there are some of the most confusing verses in the scripture. So I decided to pick those verses while we were outside uh, to do that one. Um, but actually, we're just going through the book, so that's what comes up. And I hope by the time we're done, you don't see them as confusing, but as a blessing. So we're in a series right now entitled A Living Hope in a Dying World. And if you recall, Peter, inspired by our glorious God, gives us these infallible words breathed out by him. And they are sent as an encouragement to Christians scattered all throughout Turkey, modern-day Turkey, um, that are a part of the Roman Empire. And so they're tempted to be discouraged that when they came to faith in Jesus, suffering came with it, and they were not necessarily expecting it. Lesson number one, following Jesus does not mean the alleviation of suffering. It means God's presence in suffering. And so we are gathered today because he has promised to be with us. So now what I want to do is to read the passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18, actually 17 through 22. And then I will pray and we'll continue. The word of God reads as follows. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. There you go. That's what we're going to dive into today. One question being answered by this. What gives us a living hope in the midst of a dying world? Let me pray. Father, come. Show off your glory. May everything grow strangely dim in the light of your brilliance, your glory, your goodness, your love, your all-satisfying nature. Would you just come, blow a fresh wind of your spirit upon us, change us on the spot, give us joy, give us peace, give us hope in you. May we trust you more than ourselves, and may we see the world through the lenses of love and not through hatred. Through hope and not despair, draw us near to you, I pray. Meet with us through your holy word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
How do we get to God? There is no greater question in all the universe than how do we get to God? Issues of life and death hang on the answer to this question. And while we're outside here, behind you, in front of me, the Raleigh skyline, there have been echoes all over the place that people want to know the answer to that question. How do we get to God? Because it's there in our city streets when many people are angry over premature death. We have some pro protesting over black lives being prematurely killed. We have some protesting over unborn children being prematurely killed. We have some laboring so that children aren't trafficked in our city or our state or that immigrants get a fair chance to citizenship. This city center is a place, a place where people rightfully hate mistreatment and hate people dying prematurely. And the answer is we hate these things because they're written on the heart of every person. Every person has a common revolt against life ending. It's not how it's supposed to be. It's sad. It's painful. It's scary. And in the midst of that fear, in the middle of the tears and the pain, are wrestles of what is life about? What happens when we die? Who is God? Deep stuff. Stuff that sometimes we don't want to think on. And I'm here today to help you see what's true. Help you see what's true from the scriptures. What the Bible says about life and death, God and humanity, joy and peace. How do we get to God? It starts in the beginning. In the beginning, God. This means God exists. I know it might seem like a common thing to some of us, but for others of us, that's a question. Does God really exist? The answer is he does exist. No human can speak or create oceans with their mouths. Try it. Can you do it? No. I don't know if you know this stat, but we have explored only 5% of our oceans. We've only explored 5% of our oceans. 95% left unexplored. Oceans make up 75 or 70% of our earth, which means if we've explored all land, we still have 65% of our entire earth that's never been explored. That should make you feel really tiny. It makes me feel really tiny. But in the midst of feeling tiny, it makes God look really great. And if you trust in Him, there is no greater place of security than the creator of the oceans. The one who's explored every square inch and created it all for His glory. And when we look at the mountains, the Rockies, and the Appalachians, they are hills compared to the Himalayas, and He speaks them into existence. The Grand Canyon and our vast earth, they scream that something greater than us is here. That something has created us, and He is God. He is the Creator. That in and of itself lays down some ground rules. He's Creator. We are creation. We are dependent upon Him. And that Creator has created us for a purpose. If I make a piece of art, I'm communicating something with that piece of art. I've got a message I'm trying to communicate a medium or colors, but I have a message behind that creation. If God is our creator, he has a message and a purpose behind the creation and existence of our lives. And it is this simple thing, that we live for his glory. We live for him to look beautiful. We exist to find our greatest joy in him. Trees don't exist only 
so that oxygen can be thrown into the air. They exist for the glory of God. So the people would say, how in the world did those get there? And God, all of a sudden, gets praise. So we're created. We are created for this purpose. The Bible summarizes it in two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The first, loving God, is the greatest commandment. There isn't one above that. The second one follows it, though, that if we know we've been loved by God and we love Him, we will result in a life of love where we love our neighbor as ourselves. But many of us, let me rephrase that, all of us have failed at some point to live for that purpose. We rebel. We live for ourselves. We love ourselves more than God. And this selfishness called sin is what breaks all humanity, it breaks our world, and is what introduces death into the storyline of humanity. The consequence of sin is death. Humanity has rejected God. We have broken His good laws. We have failed to believe His promises. This is sin. And this sin goes up by another name. It's called unrighteousness. And that's what we will begin to see when we look at this passage today. And this unrighteousness has brought suffering into the world. From viruses that shut down cities to hurricanes that devastate coastlands to our lives that will experience death. It's because sin's in the world. Sin breaks things. And Jesus Christ is the answer for sin. Where is the hope? The hope is found in Jesus. And so there are three things this passage teaches us today. Three things. There is hope, number one, in Jesus' death. Two, there is hope in Jesus' power to save. And three, there is hope in Jesus' triumph over enemies. How are these Christians? These Christians that Peter is addressing, how are they supposed to live in the midst of slander and attacks by individuals? How are they supposed to have hope? They were to remember that Jesus died in their place. Second way you have hope is to remember Jesus' power to save to the uttermost. There's not one crevice of your heart that is left untouched by God's saving power. And three, we have hope by remembering there's no enemy that will ultimately defeat us because Jesus has overcome the world. So let's read the text. It begins in verse 18 with these words. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Number one, where in the world do we find hope in the midst of a dying world? There is hope in Jesus' death. The biblical hope is summarized in one sentence. Our hope in a dying world is God with us. The mystery of mysteries that a holy God could be near a sinful people is the hope of a dying people. Of a people dead in trespasses and sins. And that's why Jesus came to earth. Because our sin separates us from him. And our God did not stay separated from us. Instead, he came to us to solve the sin problem. He entered into our suffering. The love of love, the sacrifices of sacrifices are found in 1 Peter 3.18. In these words, Christ suffered. Jesus Suffered. He suffered at the hands of lawless men. He, he was mocked and betrayed. He was misrepresented and he was crucified on a Roman cross for charges he did not commit. The uniqueness of the Christian hope is that Jesus 
is our Savior. And He was not removed from our pain, but He voluntarily entered into it. He suffered. That's what the text says. Look at it. Christ suffered. He suffered, first of all, to show us His love. To show us His love. He knows our hurts. He wept over death. He understands your betrayal. He grieves over your loss because that's not how it's supposed to be. We have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. That's supposed to bring you security today. If you are in Christ, the one who is fully God and fully man, He came so that no matter our pain, no matter how much we don't understand, we could never charge God with being unloving. Never. Because rather than write us off, which is a pattern for most of us, when someone wrongs us, rather than writing people off, He came to us. He suffered, is what the Bible says, for us. He died the death we deserved. He died for us. And so... When we look at his death, Christ did not only suffer to show us his love, but he also suffered to show us his justice. We've got to see both. The cross tells us of his great love for us, but also that he takes sin seriously. Jesus' death on the cross is more than just, I understand your pain and I love you. Jesus' death on the cross, his suffering communicates that sin is gross and it is serious. So many of us might say or think, God, if you're good, if you're so powerful, why don't you do something about evil? Why don't you do something about all the evil in our world? And the answer is found right here in 1 Peter 3.18, I have. I sent my son to suffer once for sin. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Who are the unrighteous? We are. You might hear in the word unrighteous, the word right, and then you put the un before it, not right. We are unright is what we are. It means we've all sinned. We fall short of what God's greatness deserves and demands. We are all unrighteous, and we might balk at that because we might have a comparison in our mind. I'm better than my neighbor. I'm better than my sister. I'm better than my brother, my mom, or my dad, my family members. I'm better than, but the comparison is not between anyone around you. The comparison is between us and God. And when our lives are compared to the perfect creator God, we fall massively short. Why do we fall short? Because we've all gotten angry. We've all lied. We've insisted on our own way. We have not listened well. We've been quick to speak. The words that have come out of our mouths have hurt people. We've been jealous. We're filled with pride. We're filled with lust. We view people as objects at times for our benefit rather than made in the image of God to love. Some of us are battling addiction. Some of us has cheated on a test, cheated on our taxes, cheated to get ahead. Many of us have not been gentle or compassionate. We've been rude. We've been greedy, not sharing, or we're filled with the love of money. All of these are just some of the commands that God says are good and they're laid down in His Word. But I have a greater indictment. 
beyond us all being lawbreakers in those ways, we have what Augustine calls disordered loves, which means we have loved things more than people, and we have loved people more than God. We've gotten all of our loves out of whack. It shows we are broken at our core. We are unrighteous. We hear a lot about injustice these days. A lot about injustice. But before there is injustice done to us or injustice done around us, Peter calls the church to remember the injustice we have done to God. Our injustice, our unrighteousness is so bad it demanded the perfect Son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, to die in our place. At the core of the Christian hope is not indifference to evil, but it is a just seriousness against evil, against unrighteousness. If we really want justice in our city, if we want full justice, then we should have outrage at how we treat our God so unjustly. We give up on Him. We don't give glory that is due His name. Justice is all humanity being punished for our unrighteous rebellion against God. And you need to hear me. I don't say this as a self-righteous preacher. I say this as a fellow sinner. I'm with you. This sin thing, this unrighteous thing, it's a we thing. It's an all of us thing. It's not a you problem. It's a we problem. We are all unrighteous and we deserve God's just punishment. Summary, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says there's a group of unrighteous that are out there. That's you. That's me. And we are going to die because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. All die because all sin. We all deserve to be killed eternally. We deserve the eternal, utter misery and devastation of the devil's hell. But God. This is one of the most hopeful verses in all of the scripture. One of the most hopeful verses in all of scripture is that God's love and justice were communicated and that Christ suffered once for sin. The once for all sacrifice was made. Sin so bad it deserved the shedding of blood. He shed his own blood in our place. God was so serious about sin, he killed his only son. The perfect sacrifice. And he was so committed to love that he killed his only son. Sacrificing the only righteous one for us, the unrighteous. So that any of us who would turn from sin and trust in Jesus... Any of us who would surrender our lives to Him would be brought to God. Do you see that there in the Scripture? For Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that we might be brought to God. You can imagine a train. A train traveling 100 miles an hour. And we walk out in the middle of the tracks and it's coming right at us. We deserve to be hit by that train because we are standing on the tracks. We have put ourselves there. And right before the train hits us with its full force, one comes, pushes us out of the way, and takes the full force for us, even though we deserve it. One has stood in our place. That's the love. The love of Jesus. But the scene here is a courtroom. It's a courtroom of God the just condemning the murderer to a death sentence 
And then in comes Jesus, who did nothing wrong, and he says, I will take that sentence, and he dies in our place. Our deepest longing in all of the universe is that we get to God. And the only way to get to God is by trusting in Jesus, suffering in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then, and then alone, are we bought, brought into the presence of God. This is our greatest need. Not our marriages, not money, not the promotion that we long for, not fame, not possessions. It's God himself. We get the intimate care of God as Father when we trust in him. We're set free from condemnation. And everything changes. Dear friends, many of you that are hearing my voice right now are followers of Jesus. And what that means is that all of a sudden, everything has changed. His disposition toward us has changed. We are no longer enemies but children. And we are now said to be in Christ. That means we are part of His body. And now His holiness treats us differently. Those who belong to Him... He comes to us with a holy longing, a holy love, a holy tenderness. And as one pastor comments, the image shifts from God justly punishing an enemy to God hating a disease in one of his children. This image is used in a book I've been reading, Gentle and Lonely, by a man named Dane Ortland. But what happens for a loving parent? When they see a child inflicted with a disease, you hate that disease. And what happens in the heart of a loving parent is that there's a mysterious kind of a rising of affection when you see the sickness in the child. This is how God's holiness looks at our sin. He hates the disease and he fights against that disease, but he loves the child and his affections for the child only grow as he sees this battle raging in his child against the disease of sin. So it is with God. And we are called to come humbly to him. And as we have come to him, we see that everything has changed about his disposition. From fighting against us to fighting for us. We go from longing for acceptance to being accepted by faith. We go from an old nature, dying in despair, to a new nature with a living hope. For those of you who are Christians, trust Him today. The call by Peter is that you can have hope by remembering He died in your place. Trust in Him. Turn away from sin, the sin that's choking you, and know your Savior loves you and is aggressively prying your grip off of your life and away from the sin that easily entangles you. Know the Father's love for you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, repent so that you might too not have God as your enemy, but as a father. Peter not only asked them to remember their hope in Jesus' death, but their hope that is found in Jesus' power to save. Now, the verse tells us that Christ, saving sinners from deserved Judgment reminds Peter of a story in the Bible. So if you're following this passage so far, he tells these Christians to find their hope that Jesus suffered in their place, the righteous or the unrighteous, to bring them to God. And this picture 
of Christ standing in their place reminds them of an Old Testament story, the story of Noah. And this is what we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 22, when it says, Jesus being put to death in the flesh means he died in his body, but he was made alive by the Holy Spirit. He rose from the dead three days later. And then it says, in which he, that is the spirit of Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. I tell you what that means, I'm saying. Because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Okay, I'm glad you understand that. Let's just move on. It says, Peter takes us back to the days of Noah. And Noah is an illustration of the saving power of God. Now, many world religions have a flood account. The Bible has the true story. The biblical story teaches us this consistent lesson about the God of the universe. The God of the universe about humanity and about sin and the destruction it brings. The biblical account of Noah teaches us also about the grace of God and his deliverance. Here's what the book of Genesis says. First book in the Bible. It tells us that the days of Noah were, quote, filled with wickedness, end quote. The Bible says every intention, that's a big phrase, every intention of the thoughts of the people's hearts was only evil continuously. That was the state of all of humanity in the days of Noah. The Bible calls it wickedness. Wickedness and evil has at its core disregarding God. Everyone was out for themselves. When push comes to shove, everyone was refusing to love anyone but themselves. And Genesis says the earth was, quote, filled with violence, end quote. Their pride, greed, lust, deceit, jealousy, stealing, cheating, anger was not only a vote of no confidence in the creator of the universe, but the result of such selfishness and lawlessness was violence. Violence is not of God. All humanity practicing wickedness. But it was in those days when Noah was shown grace. That's actually what his name means. It means grace. Undeserved favor. And instead of being judged, he was asked to trust God. God asked him to make an ark, a massive boat, so that him and his three sons and their wives, that's a total of eight people. That's where Peter gets the number eight. Eight persons and all can be spared. The question is, what was Noah going to do? The answer, Noah trusted God. He trusted God. He feared the Lord. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, he walked with God. And because he trusted in the Lord, he did whatever God asked him to do. And by simple faith alone, he was saved. You know how a fruit tree works. If it's alive, it bears fruit. The fruit of a person with faith is one who seeks to obey whatever Christ says. Not some of it. Not making excuses for the part that you don't like. It is a, a blank slate. Whatever you say, I will obey. I want to follow you. And Noah, although it seemed crazy, was asked to build a boat in the middle of a place not near to water. He did it. 
He did it. And for many days he built an ark and he was asked to bring a male and female of every living thing so that humanity and all animals might be kept alive. You can imagine the threats, the mocking of Noah for building a boat with no water around, the ridicule. And as he was gathering all of these animals, how stupid he must have looked. But Peter, in his second letter, calls Noah a herald of righteousness. Noah, with his words and with his actions, was a preacher. A preacher of how good and right God is and was. And that means he was telling his opponents, his ridiculers, what righteous living looked like. And it was in those days of building the ark that Noah was proclaiming to the wicked, violent people the faithfulness of God and the necessity for everyone to follow him. And here in chapter 3, Peter is saying when Noah was preaching, it was the Spirit of Christ preaching through Noah that these individuals might repent. But they did not. Noah's regular, potentially daily sermons they finally came to an end. Because God's patience will not last forever. Judgment must come upon injustice. And the rains came, and the floods came up, the waters of judgment rose. Torrential rains that didn't just create a localized event, but a flood of the entire world. And the prideful, rebellious mockers, those given to wickedness and violence, everyone died. Except for Noah and his family. Eight persons saved through this ark. And everyone died and is characterized in 1 Peter chapter 3 as this. They are the spirits who are now in prison. These are the ones who have died. They disobeyed in the days of Noah and now they find themselves dead. Spirits who are now in prison. That prison is separation from God. It is a way to speak of the an unimaginable, unspeakable horrors of hell. Eternity, chained in eternal, fi eternal fire, separated from the light and peace and everlasting joy that can only come from the presence of God. Those having died on this earth without trusting in Jesus are judged eternally because their sin was not just against Noah, but theirs and ours is a sin against God. Infinite God deserving infinite judgment. But the emphasis here, the emphasis here is on God's power not only to bring judgment, just judgment on the entire world, but on His ability to save by His amazing grace. The story is a story of great grace where Noah and his family were saved. They were saved. And this causes Peter to remember another story. A story that happens to every single believer. A story that we're going to get to see in this horse trough over here through baptism. Peter says, just as Jesus dying on the cross, saving us from our sins by dying the righteous for the unrighteous, it reminds me of the story of Noah where God justly judges all those who lived unrighteously, but He also showed His power and grace to save. That reminds me of the story and the drama called baptism. And that leads us to our last point. There is hope. There is hope in Jesus' triumph over enemies. There's hope in remembering Jesus' death. 
and there is hope in remembering his power to save. And now there is hope in Jesus' triumph over enemies. Look at verses 21 and 22, chapter 3. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that is the story of Noah, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter, addressing these believers who are suffering, he says to these newer believers, this is why baptism is so important. Baptism, like we're going to see here in a little bit through Katie Beth's testimony, is a living drama of waters that judge and waters that save like we read about in the time of Noah. Baptism is a command. A command that after you profess faith in Jesus, you are meant to go through this act of obedience. And just like God commanded Noah to build an ark, we are commanded to be baptized. But this baptism is important, but not because of its ceremony. It's not important because when Katie Beth gets in that water, her sin is going to be washed away by the water. No, that's not how it works. Our sin is washed away by the blood of Jesus. This is an external action that communicates what has already happened inside the heart. That's why Peter says, this baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not the outward action, but baptism saves you in this sense. It's an outward action that demonstrates the internal reality that you trust in Him. That your appeal to God is, I love you, I trust you, and I need you alone for the forgiveness of sin. That's the good conscience that he talks about. An appeal to God for a good conscience is the realization that only He can wash you clean and get rid of your sin. And it's when He does that that your conscience is set free from enslavement to sin. It's an internal work that comes through faith alone. It's saying, Father, I trust you. I love your son. And I believe Jesus is the only way for me to find new life. For me to be made new. To wash clean. Shame covered up. New desires given. And the Holy Spirit coming and taking residence in the heart. See, Jesus, he's the ark, so to speak. There was only one way for Noah to be saved. It was by getting in the boat. And there's only one way for us to be saved. It's by placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only way that we can be saved from the proverbial waters of judgment. He's our only hope. So baptism, as Peter says here in this text, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's an appeal to God that you are a sinner justly deserving God's wrath. This is the part of the drama when the person is going to be taken under the water. It's symbolizing that our sin means we should die and the waters of judgment should cover us. But baptism is an appeal to God not only that we deserve God's wrath, but that all of us goes under the water showing that we all of us need to surrender all of us to Him. This is what is so precious, is that we deserve to be fully judged. 
we could wholly surrender our lives to Jesus. This is what the appeal is. And these waters, it's an appeal because you don't stay under, but you're brought out. It's an appeal that these waters are waters of salvation and that they communicate. They communicate a Savior who washes us clean and makes us new. Death doesn't have the final word. Death does not have the final word. Our greatest enemy, our greatest problem, our greatest fear is conquered through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Christian, Christian hearing my voice, remember, death does not get the final word. Our suffering doesn't get the final word. Governments and enemies and pain does not get the final word. There is hope for you to reflect that Jesus died in your place. He made you one with Him. Yes. Remember His power to save. So we should not be hopeless, church. We should not be hopeless. Christian, remember, enemies don't get the last word. Baptism communicates that Jesus overcame all enemies, including death itself. He gets the last word. Person hearing my voice that doesn't know Jesus. You might feel as if you're too far gone. You might feel as if you are totally undeserving. That means you are in the perfect place to find forgiveness of sins. The Bible doesn't say fix yourself up, then come. He says come as you are. Come to Him right now. Confess your sin, that you are unrighteous, and that Jesus alone stood in your place, and that He alone can save you from your sins. Confess. Do not wait. Surrender your life today to Jesus Christ. And the beauty of His salvation, addressed to both of us today, is that some of us feel like there are corners of our lives that might be too far gone. Some things that just always characterize us. Something that when He saves us, there's still something that just keeps raring up or some part of us that's too far gone. I want you to hear Hebrews chapter 7 when He says this. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. And I end with a quote. For some of us, there's that one deep, dark part of our lives, even our present lives, that seems so intractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery. To the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25 means this. God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our soul. Those places where we're most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to be, He knows us to the uttermost. There's no part He does not know and He saves us to the uttermost because His heart is drawn out to us in the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of His tender care. So all of us, when we see these waters stirred, remember this living drama applies for you. He loves you. And His saving grace saves you completely to the uttermost. Gets you to the end all the way until you see him face to face.
Let me pray, and then we'll get to hear this living drama played out as Katie Beth shares her testimony, and we get to see baptism in living color. Let's pray. Father, please come. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your son to die in our stead. Thank you. That in the middle of our city, we get to hear these precious words. Jesus died in our place. Father, please encourage the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Father, please give us courage to live for you. Give us boldness to speak of you. Give us love for our neighbor that is so shocking that people ask us to give a defense for the reason for the hope within us. May our mouths bless. May our hearts celebrate and rejoice. And may tonight fill us with thanksgiving. We love you and we thank you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.